this is a fresh word. I have many nice snapshots that I've already prepared on, but then God didn't want me to bring any one of those. And uh, so on, on Wednesday, I started something new. So this is very fresh. There might be a couple of hiccups here and there, but I trust that this is a word for us in this time. So the Dutch have a saying. They say that he who has a choice has trouble. And uh, I think it's quite often the case, especially if you and your wife need to decide what to eat or where to eat, you know. So choice gives us trouble. What if we always had guidance? What if we always knew exactly what to do, where to go, if we had an answer for everything? So this is what I want to talk about today. So you can put up the first verse, Exodus 28. We're going to read a lot, and I'm going to try and read fast so that... uh, so we see, and thou shalt make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work after the work of the ephod, shall thou make it, gold, blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine twined linen, shall thou make it. So this is a woven cloth that he's talking about. Next verse. Four square shall it be, double, a span shall it be, be the length of it, and a span shall be the breadth of it. So actually it should be square. That's what it talks about, the ephod. Next verse. And thou shalt set in it settings of stone, Four rows of stones, the first row shall be sardius, a topaz, and a carbuncle. This shall be the first row. So I drew it here, and I know that this red light now filters it so the colors are not visible, but just so that you have an idea. There it is. Uh, Next verse. And the second row shall be an emerald, sapphire, and a diamond. Next verse. Third row shall be ligure, an agate, and an amethyst. Last verse. And the fourth row shall be a beryl and an onyx and a jasper. And they shall be set in gold in the enclosing. So that one there, that's a black stone. That's why I just drew some dotted lines. Um, So that's the idea that we have there. 21st verse. And on the stones shall be the name of... So it doesn't say it there, but if we go and look at um, Exodus 30 verse 39, it does tell us exactly that it's engraved. So there it says, all the children of Israel, their names shall be engraved like on a signet ring on you. So basically... In every one of these stones, a name of a tribe shall be engraved. Okay, so that's the idea that we have. Now, it talks about a signet ring. Now, it's my interpretation, and I'm not saying this is what it means, but a signet ring is typically a negative of what the outcome would be. So if it's pressed in clay or wax, what remains is what you can read. But if you had to look at the signet ring, it is the reverse of that. So it's just so that you put the picture in your mind what it would have looked like. Let's go to verse 30, 28 verse 30. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. Now, there isn't much text to go by to get a proper explanation of what is happening here. So there's two more stones, the Urim and the Thummim. And they are said to be also on the breastplate. However, it doesn't seem like they are on the breastplate on the front. So there's conjecture. There's an idea. There might have been a pouch on the back because it has to be over Aaron's heart. So it has to be more or less over his left-hand side. So it seems like there was a pouch in the back where these two stones, they had to be on the left-hand side over his heart. And this is actually what I wrote. So this is Urim. And Thummim. So the im at the back, that is an im sound. Im, im is plural. 
So we can see that they actually come from two words. It's ur and thumb. So ur means light. Thumb, we read, and it's not a verse that I put up, but Job 1 verse 8, it says that Job was righteous and he was perfect. So it's the idea of being perfect. It's the idea of being straight. So thumb is a straight answer, a perfect answer, a good thing. You know, it's, it's almost like saying you have integrity. But this is plural. So it's a stone of lights and a stone of integrities. So that's basically what those two stones were. So Numbers 27 verse 21. And he shall stand before Eliezer. So just a bit before that. So Joshua has to now do something. Moses inquires of God. God says, Joshua, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest. Who shall ask counsel for him after the judgment of the Urim before the Lord? And at his word shall they go out, and at his word shall they come in, both he and all the children of Israel with him, even all the congregation. So we see that the breastplate, because the Urim and the Thummim was part of it, it was perhaps just on the backside of it, but we see that they used the breastplate to get guidance from God. So whenever they needed an answer, they would just go before God and ask. So how does this work? How is it possible for you to ask a cloth with a metal plate with stones? Have you ever spoken to stones and gotten an answer from it? So the Bible doesn't tell us how it works. But there are texts outside of the Bible, which I'm not suggesting that you read. In fact, I believe our pastor will tell you, don't read those things. Because they're not part of our canon. What is our canon? Those are the books that we believe that does come from God. These books are perhaps a bit mystical. You know, they have some uh, additions to the stories that didn't really happen, but seems like it makes the stories more powerful. So these are legends. So in this one book, there's a book called, a Hebraic book called the Zohar. Zohar is a combination of all the mysticism that has happened in the time of the Israelites. Uh, Pastor Dani might know about the, the Zohar. Like we have the Apocrypha, that is part of more or less the New Testament and the Old Testament, in which we can also read things, but that's not part of our gospel. So in the Zohar, there's two ways that they describe how this breastplate and the Urim and the Thummim worked. I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is at least something that I got. So they would say the following things would happen. The high priest would stand and inquire from God. Let us say in the case where the earth, Israel was cursed, who made the mistake? So the answer would be the high priest would stand before God and he would ask God, what is wrong? Then, according to the Zohar, all 12 of these stones would light up. And then the head or the leader of every tribe has to walk past the high priest. And then one of these stones will go out. And it's that tribe. Then that tribe stands and they get all the leaders of the households. And then... 
again, now they have the Urim and the Thummim because now they've determined then they would look at the Urim and the Thummim. And whoever passes before them, the Urim and the Thummim, would give an answer. And then they would select until they get to the one person who is the guilty party. So this is what the Zohar says. I'm not saying this is the way it works. Now the Zohar says there was another way that it worked. Remember all the names of the tribes were engraved? So they said, no, not really. Everything lighted up. They said, everything was dark. When the high priest inquired of God, then the letters, one after the other, will light up. And God was typing the message for them in the letters. And they had to read. So that's the way that God could give them broader messages than just selecting. So they could get, like for instance, David, and we'll read the, the text, where the, the question was asked and, and you know, David got an answer to say, pursue. So in other words, even the wording might have been spelled out for him. Are we believing it? Do you believe that it lighted up? I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying, well, there's an explanation. We have something of historical books that say this is the way it worked. We don't have another explanation. We don't know how it worked, and we could perhaps be satisfied with that. So let's go and look at Joshua 7, verse 14 to 20. Is this good enough? Yeah, I'm not misleading you. I'm not teaching you witchcraft, sorcery. So Joshua had taken Israel over the Jordan. They had gone their rounds around Jericho. The walls fell, but before they went in, Joshua gave them clear instruction from God. The instruction was this. You can take all the spoils. Leave the silver and gold that belongs to God. Okay, you remember that. Yeah. Now they had this victory. They had all these spoils. They were celebrating. God is powerful. The next city is Ai, or Ai, as some people would pronounce it, Ai. So they now need to go to Ai. Joshua looks at Ai and he says, 300 men, no problem. Send the 300 men. They get a smacking. 30-something of them got killed and they fled. So Joshua is now concerned. God, what is happening? So he has the high priest there and he asks, what is happening? So Eliezer now asks God. God says, Israel is cursed. So now what has happened? Why are we cursed? So in the morning... Therefore ye shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be the tribe which the Lord taketh shall come according to the families, and the family which the Lord shall take shall come by the household, and the household which the Lord shall take shall come man by man. Next verse. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire. He and all that he hath, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. Okay, so let's go to the next verse. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by the tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. So I've explained how probably this would have worked. So the tribe of Judah was taken. Next verse. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of the Zorites. And he brought the family of the Zorites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Next verse. And he brought the household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Kamri, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah was taken. Next verse. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord of God of Israel and make confession unto him and tell me now what thou hast done. Hide not it from me. Next verse. And Achan answered Joshua and said, indeed, I have sinned against the Lord and thus have I done. So 
we see that the breastplate was accurate in determining who the guilty party was. Why was Israel now cursed? So, good example. 1 Samuel 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. So, Saul was in battle. All the men were in battle, and Saul said, Look, we're not going to rest until we've destroyed this enemy. So I'm even charging you, none of you will eat anything today until we have the victory. Now those men were hungry and they were tired. So the men of Israel were stressed that day because Saul had adjured the people saying, Cursed be the man that eateth food until the evening that I may be avenged of my enemies. So none of the people tasted any food. Let's go to the verse 27. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people of the oath. Wherefore he put forth the end of his rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes were enlightened. Verse 37. And Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Wilt thou deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he answered him not that day. So God kept quiet. Now we have a problem. The Urim and the Thummim is not talking. The breastplate is not talking. What do we do? So here's a challenge. Verse 40. So somehow he figured out Israel was cursed. Then he said unto Israel, All the men will stand on one side, and Jonathan and myself, I'll stand on the other side. And the people said unto Saul, Do what seemeth good unto thee. Next verse. Therefore Saul said unto the Lord of God of Israel, Give a perfect. That perfect is tam, tamim. He says, give us a tamim. So that's not a very clear for us. You know, if we had read just that, give us a tamim, doesn't seem, but that is exactly in understanding the Urim and the Thummim, that's what he's asking God. He's asking God, I'm going to look at the Urim and the Thummim, give us a straight, a direct answer. Don't go this way. I want a direct answer now. And Saul and Jonathan was taken, but the people escaped. Next verse. And Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. So it was determined that way, that Jonathan was the one that caused the curse. So Jonathan was not killed, but they also did win the victory. 1 Samuel 28, verse 6. This is a bit later in the life of Saul. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by the prophets. So you see, you can get into a bit of trouble if this breastplate and the Urim and the Thurim is the way that you get your answers from God. Because it seems as if God chooses sometimes not to answer. And sometimes he does give a very clear answer. Now, that being aside... Wouldn't it have been nice if every one of us had a little pocket breastplate with an Urim and a Thurim, and we have to make our decisions? Who should I marry? Where should I work? Where should I apply? What road do I take? And I just quickly ask, and the answer is there. Would it be helpful? Be honest. Yeah, of course. But what's the risk in it? This becomes your idol. This becomes everything for you. Because, and this is what the problem was with Israel. So we see John 9 verse 31. Now we know 
that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. So we see is, this is New Testament time, but they have figured out why God sometimes does not answer. So when there's sin or the nation is cursed, God doesn't talk to them. This is a problem because the high priest is supposed to appear before God and he has to take the guilt of the nation on him. So they have to be sinless before he enters into the Holy of Holies. But these are not occurrences where he's not entering the Holy of Holies. Now it seems as if only the king, the high priest, had access to the ephod and the urim and the thummim. Let's go and look at um, 1 Samuel 23, verse 6. So, it came to pass when Abiata, the son of Achimelech, fled to David, to Kailach. He came down with an ephod in his hand. So we know something is up. This guy has brought the, the answering tool with him. And verse 9. And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And he said to Abiata the priest, Bring hither the ephod. Next verse. Then said David, O Lord, God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Kailach and destroy the city for my sake. Next verse. Will the men of Kailach deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord, God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. So you see that even just the priest, Abiatar, who had seemingly not legal possession of the ephod, God was still willing to answer David. So there's some favoritism going on some places. I'm not sure about this. I told you, I just studied this from Wednesday. So I'm going to leave it at that. I'm, I can't make many other calls on this. So 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. So there was a city, Ziklach, that was given to David and his 600 men. And they had gone to beat up a couple of Philistines. And in the meantime, the Amalekites came, and they spoiled the city. They took away all the women and children and everything that is in Ziklach. So now when they came back, the 600 men were now talking amongst each other and said, it's David's fault. And now they say, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. Because the soul of all the people were grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters, not their wives, but... But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiata, the priest, Achimelech's son, I pray thee, bring hither the ephod. And Abiata brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after the troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Wow. I mean, what a word. What a word. Verse 21, this to me was an extremely precious thing. So let me just add to the story. David had the 600 men. They had just been in battle. They just came back. They found everything was burned. Everything was destroyed. Their hearts was grieved in them. 200 of the men were so tired, so worn out, that they could not march any further. They could not even cross the next brook 
So David said, okay, you guys stay behind. The other 400 of yours, let's go, because we inquired from the effort, let's go. So they went a few days, I think it was about three days, four days in my calculation before they caught up with the Amalekites. The Amalekites were having a feast. They were a bit drunk, so they were beaten quite easily, and then they came back. So David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. So the Hebrew says, David inquired of them, are you guys okay? Are you at peace? Are you still fine? Here is a king with a king's heart. He goes and he wins the battle on their behalf. These men were so knocked out, so tired, they could do nothing further for themselves. Sometimes life beats you up and you feel like, I'm going to give up. But there's a king fighting for you. And when he comes back, he salutes you. And he asks, how are you? Are you okay? The 400 men said, we're not giving them anything back. But they can have their wives and sons and daughters. And David said, I will take off my spoil and I'll share it with them. I will make sure that they get. And he made a rule and he said, from now on, every time we go in battle, whoever stays behind will share in the spoil. So it's got nothing to do with the message. I'm just throwing that in as an encouragement for you guys. Okay, I want to encourage you. doesn't matter where you are now physically. You may be one of those 200 men you have fallen, you cannot take one further step. Your king is on his way with the spoils and is concerned about you. That's the way I read the Bible. So let's go and look at Ezekiel 2 verse 63. So this very same verse, the parallel of it is in Nehemiah 7 verse 65. In our Bibles, there's two books. Um, Ezra, sorry. I, I might have said Ezekiel, Ezra and Nehemiah. In our Bible, they're two different, but in the Hebrew scrolls was one book. One book that was separated into two books. That's why when we read them, we see almost copies, one of the other. It's because they were actually one book combined. Two prophets living at the same time, uh, Nehemiah slightly after Ezra with a few years. And the Tirshata, so the Tirshata is the governor. At that stage, it was Zerubbabel, said unto them, okay, let me just fill you in. What has happened here? King Cyrus, I'm just going to put something here because I want to come back to this. Whether I put Cyrus or Babylon doesn't matter. I just want to have a point to hook back onto. When King Cyrus gave instruction that the Israelites can go and rebuild the temple. He also provided wood and gold and silver, everything that they would need to rebuild it. So when they heard, when Ezra and them heard that the temple has been rebuilt, now it was time for them to rebuild the walls of the city. But then he decided, well, if the temple is rebuilt, let's reinstate the priestly servanthood. And everybody who claimed to have been, because now they've been 
in captivity for 70 years where they could not practice their priesthood duties. So now they came and they said, my father or my grandfather was a priest. So therefore, I'm in the lineage. And now they lay claim on the fact that they can now be a priest. But it happened that some of them, the family registers, the name that they said, this is my grandfather, it's not there. Now they have a bit of a problem. So the Tirshata, who was at that stage probably Zerubbabel, said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things, which a priest was allowed to do, till they stood up a priest with an Urim and a Thurman. Implied, a priest with a breastplate will have to stand up and inquire of God and ask, is this a priest? Is he in a priestly lineage? And every one of them, and there was like about 27 or so of them that had to stand aside. So there's answers, but it's not part of this message why they were not there. So this is approximately the last time that we read about the Urim and the Thummim in the Old Testament. But there's one more place where it is implied. Hosea 3 verse 4. Okay, and it says it better in, in some translations than the others, so I've got them changing to the NIV, whereas I was looking it up in, the, in God's Word translation, but we'll see now in the NIV. There we go. For the Israelites will live many days without a king or a prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without an ephod or an idol. So God is cutting them off. He's done with them until they've learned their lesson. Until, now we can continue with that, but it's, it's basically until they turn back to God and long for their King David. Now this is about 700 B.C., but David was 1,000 B.C., so this is like 250 years or so after David, so they could not really have David as their king, but they were longing after a king like David. But now they were in captivity. So that being said, I've pushed in a couple of verses here, and I'm thinking whether I should read them. I think I will just tell you about them. So we read in Joshua 18, when the land was now divided, he cast lots. And every tribe then received their portion. So here's something very interesting, and, and this is what is interesting to me. So at this specific day, there were seven tribes that had to receive their land. And then the Bible says clearly, and the first lot was cast. Now, we don't know what lot was cast, but we know that Joshua had access to the Urim and the Thummim. So we may say that this is the way he determined it. So the first lot was cast, the first land was given, and the, the land that they received was given to them. Now tell me, this is just my logic, but if we are seven guys that are now, here's the pie, we've cut it up into seven pieces. We need to decide who gets what piece. So the lot is cast, the first is cast, Susan, you get this portion. Now you take it. The next is cast, you get and so we divide it. Now there's one piece left and one person. Are we going to cast the lot? We won't. Read the Bible. They did cast the lot again to determine who gets this last piece. You see how reliant they were to follow God. This is how Joshua was. He wanted to be sure. This is not logics. You cannot now afterwards say, but Joshua, you just decided on your own to give me that land. God didn't say I should have it. No, he cast the lot. God decided you should have that land. 
So that is probably, it's not part of the message, don't record this. This is probably why Dan is not in the book of Revelation, because they chose not to take their land. They wanted their own. I'm just congesturing here. So um, we read in Judges 8 verse 27 that Gideon, after he had the victory, the people said, you should be our king. You should be our ruler. And he didn't want that. He said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to be your king. Then he said, okay, if you want me to be your ruler, I need guidance from God as well. So what I'm asking is, every one of you, every enemy that you slayed and you took their earring, bring that earring to me and put it down here. So they collect it. And we don't know exactly how much because this, uh, this is weighed in talents. But approximately between 30 and 40 kilograms of gold that they took. Those are earrings. Now, I don't know how big those earrings were, and I don't think those were studs. So that is what he then took, and he made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah. That was his city. And all Israel went thither, a warring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and his house. You see what happened? So they have now the effort restored to them because Gideon made it. So they were not seeking God anymore. They went after the effort. This became their idol. This breastplate became the thing that became the most important thing, and this became the snare for Gideon. However, God still blessed him. For 40 years, there was no war until he died. And what does these Israelites do? Immediately after his death, they turn and they start worshipping Baals. So, because they never had a relationship with God. It was just the effort. That is the problem. Let's go and look at Genesis 6, verse 16. So Genesis 6, you know, is the story about the flood. It's a sad, sad, sad story. And I'm guilty of reading my Bible wrong. Because I used to read that God came and he destroyed the land and the people. This is the way I read it. Well, actually, that's what King James says. But his people didn't translate it with enough diligence to give us the right words. So if we read the Hebrew, then God says he looked down on the people and he was sorry that he made man. Because men had destroyed themselves and men had destroyed the land. And everything that God looked at had been destroyed by man. Then God says, I will wipe it away. I'm going to wash it away. I'm going to blot it out. Unfortunately, the King James translates that wiping away as I will destroy them. And that's not what God's intention, because he says, I'm so sorry that I made them. Look how they've destroyed themselves. I cannot let this be. Man cannot live in this destructive state any longer. I need to wipe it clean, but I'm so glad to see Noah, and he found grace. So, now he gets instructions to build the ark. And in the ark... 6 verse 16, a window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set on the side thereof, with a lower, second and third story, story is added, level implied, shalt thou make it. So what we can see there is the ark had three stories, 
three levels. There should be a door on the side, but there, there should be this window. But it's not clear, is this window going to be on the roof, or is this window going to be on the side? Because the text doesn't say exactly what it is. So, here's my problem. The Hebrew doesn't say it's a window. The Hebrew says, a Zohar shall thou say, put in the ark. This is what the original Hebrew says, a Zohar. Zohar. And the book that I said that you guys should not read, I'm going to write that in red. This is the book that you guys should not read. But the spelling of that in English differs from that, but the Hebrew spelling is the same. So the book that we should not be reading is a thing that Noah had to put in the ark. Interesting. The tz and that, the tzur, is the root word for stone, for a rock, for a flint stone. Now I'm going to go and say what I think it is, but I'm telling you, rather read your Bible. The Bible says it's a window, so believe that it's a window, because at least then I am not telling you what to believe. But I'm telling you, according to the Hebrew, it's not a window. But it's my interpretation. When God put them in the ark, let us imagine there was a window here, a cubit by a cubit. How big is a cubit by a cubit? 450 by 450 millimeters. Can you bring enough light into an ark that is three levels deep through a window that is 450 by 450? No, you cannot. It's not practical. So I'm thinking, this is Andre thinking, and Andre is not teaching you this, Andre is just thinking out loud. <laughs> I'm just thinking out loud that there's a rock of our salvation, whose name is Jesus. And he would not let Noah go through the flood himself. And he said, put me in the ark. Let me be there with you. And I'll give light to you during all of that time. Because Zohar means light. Zohar also means rock. But that being said, it's not what the Bible says. So I'm not teaching you that the, the Bible is wrong. I'm teaching you the Bible says there's a window because there it is. Now let's look a bit further. Genesis 8 verse 5. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. How the heck did Noah see the tops of the mountains? Because now Andre told you it's a rock. He cannot look through the rock. So it must be a window. So maybe there's an explanation. Let's look at Genesis 8 verse 6. Okay. This was the next verse from the tops of the mountains were seen, the very next verse, and it came to pass at the end of 40 days. So that's 40 days after Noah could see the tops of the mountains. That Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Here, Hebrew does not use the word Zohar, but Chalon. Chalon means a cutting or an opening in the side. So, I have a problem with this. I have a big problem with it. If there was a window on the side, why would Noah need to send out a bird? He can look. There's nothing wrong with his eyes. He can open the window and have a look and see. Oh, it's dry. Let's get out. So the window did not exist in the side. When we read about the Ark of the Covenant, we see that it had a cover. It's called a mikshay. 
and that cover existed of animal skins. Which animal skins? I'm thinking again that the translators, I mean, they used terms like badger and they used thing, things like porpoise. And I know a bit about Israel to know enough that there weren't any porpoises there. Those are aquatic animals. So where did they get the skins for that? Probably a mistranslation. So there was some waterproof skin that had to go over the Ark of the Covenant. And again here, let's go and look. Verse 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year, this is of Noah's age. In the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. That's the mikshay. That is the animal skins. He took off the animal skins. So there were animal skins on top there. So I'm thinking, this is just me thinking, that Noah was curious. Maybe these animal skins were not pitched. Maybe they were fairly flat, but not flat enough to gather water. So that there would be water runoff, but not pitched high enough. Otherwise, Noah could have pushed his head in and looked through. So somehow he decided, let me make an opening in here. So he made an opening, and through that opening he could see the mountaintops. Because he could not see any further, because this is a level surface that he's trying to look through. Now we can go and look at verse 9. So what I'm doing here is I'm showing you typically how I do Bible reading and how I do Bible studying, because this is a new word to me. So in order for me to understand why God told me to look at the Urim and the Thurim was I was reading here and there, here and there, because that's the way the picture fills up for me. So I'm just leading you step by step how I read the Bible. But the dove, okay, so Noah let a raven out. The raven didn't come back. Then he took a dove out. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him in the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the earth. Then he put forth his hand, and he pulled her in. So it seems as if through this opening, this cutting that he had made, which is called the window, which is a chalon, uh, five liters, through this window, he let them go out, and he pulled them back in, the dove. And here's something interesting. The Hebrew word for dove is, I'm going to write it, okay, so this text is proto-Canaanite Hebrew. This is the, the Hebrew, the way it would have been written before they went into Babylon. While they were in Babylon, they were introduced to Aramaic, and the Aramaic had a different text. When they came out, the new square form text was applied. So I'm going to write just in the new square form text because it looks nicer. So there is a word. Yavan. So out of this word, there's another, and I'm breaking one of the Hebrew rules, but forgive me for that. So the other Hebrew word is if that was a line, then I was not allowed to drop the nun below the line unless the nun is the last letter in the word. So now that it's no longer the last letter, I'm supposed to curl up its tail and leave it there. But I'm just wanting to leave it there so that you can recognize it. So Yavan means evanescent, something that's bubbling, almost like in creation, the starting of creation, where the Spirit of the Lord hovered upon the waters, and you could see the water was doing something like this. It was evanescing, it was vibrating. When I put the hay at the back, I get the word yonah, same as the man, the prophet, Jonah, but yonah also means dove. So this is what Noah let out of the ark. He let the dove out of the ark. Let's look at John 1, verse 32. 
And John bear record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. It abode upon him, and I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same. So this is God. God said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remain on him, the same as he that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So what do we see? The Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove. Can you go back to Genesis 8 verse 9? So here we see, the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. The dove did not find a rock to stand on. But when Jesus came out of the baptism pool, the dove found a rock to stand on. So we now know the dove in Genesis represents the Holy Spirit that he released. So let us look at an alternative way. If we don't have the Urim and the Thummim, how do we hear the word of God? And that's why I want to come back to Babylon, because this is the last time that we read of it. When they came out of captivity, we read about the Urim and the Thummim. But what happened while they were in captivity? Let's go and look at Daniel 5, verse 1. Are you guys at least enjoying this trip through the Bible? This is my life. This is how I read the Bible. I'm back and forth, and I think every time I'm, I'm, I can now get out of Genesis, then God takes me back to Genesis and says, so at least, at least I'm now in Genesis 6. <laughs> so... <laughs> I can see the end is coming close. So we have a feast. Belshazzar. Who knows who Belshazzar is? He's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar had a son, Evil Modawar, who was killed by his half-brother after he was king for four years. Then his half-brother, whose name I cannot remember now, was usurped by his own son after he was only in, in ruling for two years and then that son only ruled for nine months then Belshazzar became the king so his grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar he's now the ruler now he decided to have a nice feast so he was ruler for 16 or 17 years but now he has this feast so this is his last year or his last night of having a feast and he made a great feast to thousands of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, he commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father, which is actually his grandfather, but we'll, we'll leave that for now, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. They drank wine and praised. Now let, let us look who they praised. They praised the gods of silver, they the gold, gods of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. And in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his loins were loosened and his knees smote one against each other. So literally his knees started to bang against each other. That's how scared he got because he saw something written against the well-lit wall. So there was a candlestick close to that wall, and then this hand started writing on the wall. And the king cried aloud to bring the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. So the astrologers, we know those are the guys who look at the stars. The Chaldeans, those are the magi, the magicians. Not magicians because they sleight of hand, quick card tricks. You need to look at the Hebrew, what it says, 
the magicians are those who knew writings. And they had maths and writing skills. Those were the clever guys. So those were seen as the magi, not magicians. But we only have one word for them, magicians. And the soothsayers. Interesting. Soothsayers. In Hebrew, those are the guys who cut and polish stones to use that for divination. Those are soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, whoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 11. Now, the queen, the mother of Belshazzar, she is now speaking to him. She says, there is a man in thy kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say, thy father, so she's acknowledging it's his grandfather, but she says, I say he's your father, made master, so Daniel was made master of the magicians, the astrologers, and the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. So Daniel was their master, because in him was a spirit of the Holy God. And uh, what was written? Daniel 5, verse 25. Daniel goes and he, he basically tells Belshazzar, he says, listen, your grandfather, he was blessed by God. He didn't recognize God. He became crazy for seven years. He was reinstated. All of these things happen every time when you don't recognize God. You are doing exactly the same as what you... Why didn't you learn from your grandfather? And they said, but in any case, keep your chain, keep your rope, keep the third of your kingdom. I will in any case tell you what was written. So he says, this is what was written. Many, many tekel ufarsan. Okay, so you get that. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God had numbered thy kingdom. So I wrote it, and I'm not saying this is the way it would have been written. I'm writing it here in the proto-Canaanite. In other words, the Hebraic way of writing things before the remitic type of script, this form of script, was introduced. Because it's my interpretation that if this form of script was used, the magicians would have been able to read it. They would have recognized it. Even if it was written in code, those guys are clever. They would have been able to figure it out. So there must have been a different... Now, they, at that stage, the Babylonians used cuneiform. Any of you know what cuneiform is? At least have an idea. Afrikaans on spikerskrif. So it's the type of writing where they would chisel things like that. And that would be a letter. And then there would be letters like that. And they would, you know, just stamp them into clay. And that would be their writing style. That's cuneiform. So that's the way that they wrote. So I'm just thinking when the Aramitic text was introduced, they were aware of how this was written. I'm thinking it might have been something older that Daniel was able to read, but they did not know about it. So I wrote many, many tekel ufarsan, because I want to show you something. So this word many means God had numbered your kingdom. So he says it twice. He says, I counted, and I counted again. And then I weighed. So tekel, we actually know this word. Because in modern Hebrew, the Aramaic way of writing tekel was changed. 
it was changed to be a shin, and we call it now a shekel, which is a coin. Okay, so it is a weight with which to buy things with. So it was weighed. So I counted and I counted and I weighed. If I had to combine this in one term, you were measured. So you were measured. And you were found too light. And your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So this word here, that's the P, those are the lips, which is P. That's the resh. That's the sh sound. That's perish. Or actually, it is the way Persian is spelled. So, many, the root word for many is madai. And madai is the way meats are spelled. Okay. It just blesses me. I'm just sharing my excitement with you, not with enough enthusiasm. But that's the way it blesses me. So let's go and look at Genesis 10, verse 2. The sons of Japheth. So Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, Japheth. Japheth was the youngest, but these are the sons. Homer. Homer is the great, 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 great grandfather of the Germans. Machoch, Magog. Magog is... Nebuchadnezzar's. He's the great, 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 great grandfather of Nebuchadnezzar. Madai. Those are the Medes. Javan. Remember? Javan. Those are the Greeks. Tubal and Meshech and Tyrus, when we read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and I think 40, we read about Magog, Tubal, Meshech and Tyrus making war against people. So they are combined in their efforts to kill the Shemites. Now here's something interesting. An observation. It is not a teaching. It's an observation. When Noah blessed his sons, Canaan was cursed. He said, you will be a servant for your brothers. And then Shem, he said, okay, you will have your tents, you will have beautiful things and everything. And then he said to Japheth, he said, your children will live in the tents of Shem. The Shem, they were the Shemites. Those were the Jews. So he's saying to Japheth, he said, your children will be living in the tents of the Jews. I always read it. Buddy, buddy, brother, cousin. Hey, cousin, come stay here. That's the way I read it. But I think, no. Because they were occupying their land over and over and over. Japheth was constantly occupying the land of Shem. Okay. Now you're shocked. Okay, let's go and have a look at Revelation 11, verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So we see Belshazzar was measured. And now John sees there's an angel giving a measurement stick, and he says, go and measure. Measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship therein. So every one of us, we are being measured. 
Revelations 21, verse 15. And he talked with me, and he had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the walls thereof. And the city layeth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and has measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length of the breadth is equal. I think it is um, 21 verse 6 or something like that. In any case, he says that the city shines like a stone. So when we are measured, how do we look? What is our appearance before God? Remember the high priest had to come with all of this. And God looked at it, and he would not talk to them if he found any sin. Now when we go before God, he's measuring us. He's got this angel measuring us, and he says, what do you look like? And what does John see? That we are shining like a stone, like a precious stone. That's the way God sees us, that we are shining like a precious stone. Now, let's go back to Genesis 8, and I'm now really trying to finish. Genesis 8, verse 13. I did read this before, but I want to start from here. Look at the date. 600th year, first year, first month, first day of the month. The waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark. Now, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So now Noah took away this. Noah was now able to see the ground is dry. Remember, and if we had gone back, he let the dove out. It came back because it found no sure footing. Seven days later, he let the dove out again. It came back with an olive branch. Then Noah knew that the ground was dry and there was life on it. Then he let the dove out again, and the stomach didn't return. And then the Bible says, and Noah waited 40 days. And after 40 days, now he's already got the confirmation. He saw the tops of the mountains. Three sets of seven have passed, so 21 days later that he had seen the tops. He knows for sure that there's life because he saw this olive branch. Now he waits another 40 days, and he takes away the cover. Noah was not very fast. He takes away the cover. Now he beholds that the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th, 7 and 20 is 27th month, the earth was dried. Do you remember what the previous date was? The first of the first month. We now, the 27th of the second month, 57 days later. The cover has already been removed. He knew 57 days ago the ground is dry. Now God says to him, go forth out of the ark. What did we learn from that? Sometimes things look like they're ready. We can move, and we move on our own. Sometimes we have to do like Noah. We have to wait. We have to sit and wait, even if it's 40 days longer, another 57 days. But God, everything is ready. Can't I move? When can I move, God? He had to sit. I can imagine what his wife was saying to him. I can just imagine. What is stopping you? Why aren't you moving? I mean, I'm, I'm just, well, <laughs> I'm just thinking. His wife was saying to him, listen to God. Of course, that's what his wife would have said to him. But I think she may have said, is he no stupid? He can't see this What is stopping you? 
So here is one final bit. Revelation 21, verse 6. And there are many, many, four times that this is said. And he said unto me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. So God says, he's saying there, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm going to give you of the water. In other words, if you ask of me, if you're thirsty enough to hear me, I will give to you freely. If you are thirsty enough to hear, you have to be thirsty enough to hear, then I'll give it to you. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. He showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone, most precious, even a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So she had a light like a stone. Here's the kicker. Urim, Thummim, Alpha, Omega. First and last. That's how God spoke to them right from the start, as the first and the last, and today to us, first and last. He is our Urim and our Thurim. He's in our hearts. We don't need a physical device because this will become our idol. But now because he's inside, we have a relationship with him. And we turn to him for every answer that we need. Every time we need something, we turn to God. Because he cannot be an idol. He is the only true God. That was really, really... You know, thank you that we can hear his voice. What a... a, You know, Jesus died for you to hear his voice. He gave up this spirit. For you to hear his voice, how amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we need to, oh, we need to appreciate that.